Do I start? Yeah, go for oh, it. Okay. So I, this is more like the conver- just kind of like casual conversation sort of thing. So yeah, tell tell me about the most embarrassing, or one of the, what, an embarrassing experience that you had. One time I was preaching about ten years ago at uh, at Memorial, and and so it's a few hundred people, you know, so it just maximizes the level of embarrassment. Uh, that were there, and I was wearing a shirt that said the it was a Price is Right shirt, you know, like for the TV show, and my theme for that morning was the Price is Right, and I was talking about the worthiness of God and how that when people were called, when when Paul or somebody was called, um, you know, a God, they would rip their clothes, you yeah. know what I mean? Well, this Price is Right shirt was white, and I had neglected to think through. I'd been washing it in bleach for years, mm-hmm. and so when I reached up, <laughs> to pretend like I was ripping my shirt. This is the only shirt I had on, by the way. That's I awesome. ripped it, That's and awesome. I am, I, I, how would I say this? I'm not clean shaven on my chest. You're I, a barrel chested man. I, I'm a barrel chested man, <laughs> and so now it, when I, so I, I tore the shirt, and it tore like six inches from uh, right under my collar to right above my right at the edge of my bottom of my ribs, yeah. rib cage, and so. So I still have 10 minutes more to preach and it's now gaping and I am just pretending like it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I have had com- I have had comments about that now for it's been 10 12 years ago about I remember that time you exposed all your chest hair. <laughs> so it was a shining moment. I had two follow-up questions. One <laughs> every before every you on Sunday mornings before you preach, do you now trim your chest hair just in case? <laughs> and two, I will neither confirm nor deny. And two, <laughs> was there a meeting held about your <laughs> about your shirt ripping? <laughs> this is how I knew the elders at Memorial were about Jesus <laughs> and not about just simply avoiding embarrassment. Uh, is that I never had a conversation. It, it was laughed about. I did get a couple people saying, "Hey, that reminds me of Tom Jones," which I don't know enough about Tom Jones to know if that was positive or negative. And I did feel like when women would say it, it was either they were expressing out of repulsion or some odd. I don't know who Tom Jones is. That's a weird thing. I think he's he's a singer. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Jones. Yeah. Anyway, he's still alive. I just saw he had a birthday recently. Anyway, how about you? What was an embarrassing time when you were speaking? So there have been plenty of times where like I just I I got up and I sucked. Um, But those aren't like those aren't as fun whenever like you you just hear your message kind of like crashing or not even crashing, but just like dull like faces not caring um not caring at all so this is not i'll share my embarrassing story next week i think but i'll share a fun (laughs) a fun story that i i had it's probably the best thing i've ever done while preaching or teaching so this was like actually like earlier this year and you might be able to still find video of it i we had you know our little uh cool water bot like cool little mini water bottles that we took up on stage with us to you know drink and i was preaching in big church and I set the water ball down, and I was really pumped for this for this sermon. Uh, I'm very hit or miss on these things. Like, if I get assigned a topic, and I'm like, and it, like, really hits me close, like, I, I just get super amped for it, and I'm really, I'm raring to go. And I, this was this was this kind of morning. Um, and so I was going, I'm standing on the edge of the stage. We had this weird, like, square sort of deal, and I'm standing on each corner. I'm going back and forth. And I, at one point, I kind of just, like, almost punted the water bottle off the stage <laughs> but the cool part was that it landed face up um it was it was awesome it's like a tiktok video it, it was i pa- <laughs> i paused for like a good few seconds to marvel at it and i remember i i was i was really hoping that we'd catch like the the flip on camera but it didn't happen oh man 
Hello and welcome to the Amazed and Perplexed Podcast. My name is Connor. And I'm Jason. Now today we're going to be looking at uh, what is called the Transfiguration. We're reading from the uh, English Standard Version and um, out of Luke 9, beginning in verse uh, 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So, Connor, what amazes you about this story? So, what what amazes me about this passage is this is a li- like we talk a lot of times in like church churchy circles. You talk about mountaintop experiences, right? Usually, it happens in the form of like, man, we went on this amazing retreat, teenagers. We went to this. We started on this mission trip. We went to church camp. And we just had this encounter with God. It was, it was a mountaintop experience. Uh, and what I what it's really amazed me about this passage is you have this literal mountain, like literal mountaintop experience right. for these disciples, uh, and they behold glory and on and holiness that the likes of which we can't even begin to fathom. And I imagine we'll talk a little bit about that uh, here in a bit. Yet they experience they experience this mountaintop moment. And yet still later on, they will doubt Jesus. Still later on, they will struggle to believe. And, and I think for me, it, the reason this amazes me is because I have lived with so much shame in my life whenever I, I doubt God or I, I struggle and, and I'm not sure if I trust in his promises. And I'm like, well, Connor, you had this moment where man, you, you heard the voice of God or, or you experienced God work in this miraculous, amazing way. How could you possibly ever doubt him? And there's a sense in that, right, of, of how could the disciples ever doubt? How could, how could we ever doubt God when he's done these things for us? But, but to know that the, there's no experience that I'm going to experience here where I'm like, like I, I'm not going to walk, you know, walk into God tomorrow on the street and I'm never not going to struggle with doubt again. And, and for me, that that's just so comforting to know because I, I think the way a lot of humans live and the way I certainly live is I think about the next moment, the next mountaintop experience, man, wh- what is that going to do? How is that going to change me? And I, that's not to, to lit- belittle mountaintop experiences, but it is to put them in the proper perspective. That is, I love that. I, the, that thought is so comforting to me, and I didn't see it for years studying the Bible. I didn't connect. Here they are in this mountaintop of mountaintop experiences. Like, I cannot—if I saw Moses and Elijah, I'd be like, they're alive? <laughs> That's what yeah. I would think. 
But these are the superstars of their world. Moses and Elijah are sacred names to them, and to see them, to witness them in a flesh and blood way, and to know that's who they are, yeah, that to me is, that would change everything, and yet it doesn't seem to change that much mm-hmm. in how they relate to him. You know, and, and that, uh, yeah, I totally, totally see that. For me, what I go to about what's amazing uh, than this is Peter is presented as Mr. Impulsive. Like, I think we have that, you know, describe Peter in five words. Impulsive or some euphemism of that would be expressed uh, to say, this guy doesn't have a lot of self-control. He Mm -hmm. just says whatever's on his mind. He sees this and he's silent. He never tells anyone. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I I just, and I've, I've, I've read that before, but I'm just marveling at it right now mm-hmm. in this reading because I'm like, how t- these and James and John are obviously they're vying for power. Yeah. And what do we use in power in our relationships? But the information we know that others don't know, That's e- even if it's not gossiping. I loved when somebody says, I don't know this. And I'm like, well, let me tell you, oh, <laughs> I love that feeling. And Peter or, or James and John wanted to be in command, wanted to be in control. And they, and sons of thunder, and yet they didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And Peter, who will just say whatever's on his mind, doesn't tell anybody. This is the guy that said, I will never deny you, and then does three times. Yes. And yet he held this close until much later. That's amazing to me. And I still, I can't quite glean in all my understanding of Scripture why. Uh, why wouldn't they tell? And, and that's part of... There's another thing that perplexes me, but that leading into that perplexing piece, yeah. why would you not reference this as part of the amazing? I mean, other people would have to then believe you as secondhand information, and Jesus was very much about, hey, look, I'm giving you something to see. Will you believe? And so it, th- I guess that's it. It perplexes me that he would only present this to these three. Why not the rest of the apostles? You know, I wonder, you'll talk about the, the power dynamics and the battles that, that James and John will struggle with later on, and even with Peter. I wonder, was this was this adding fuel to that fire? Was this something that they also then begin to have to check themselves because they were these set-apart disciples? They were mm-hmm. these special, beloved disciples. And I, I wonder, like, I mean, if, if I could have this sort of experience, like, I absolutely would, but is it a small mercy or, or blessing for the other disciples that they didn't have to carry that this weight that they didn't have to struggle with the uh the implications of and and the te- not the implication the the temptation to raise yourself up because you got to experience this moment and everybody else didn't because i know for me that's exactly what i would do oh undoubtedly and see i perceive myself as an outsider mm-hmm. and so i have two reactions if i'm the insider on anything then I will immediately, I, I, I will have to really watch out the blind spot because I do insider thinking. Yeah. You know, like I, I assume people know what I know or I, I present arrogant or whatever. But then the flip side is I had to be really careful of then becoming the protector of every perceived outsider and coming down hard on those that perceive themselves as insiders. So Jesus' interaction, okay, we had a thing in our family that we're like, you never talk about something you're going to do with someone in front of someone that's not invited. Sure. It was just like, to me, that was the commonest of common sense. And when I hear it done, when somebody comes up and they're, I'm talking with somebody at church or whatever, and they say, hey, we're getting together for lunch, 
I will have huge judgment for them. I'm yeah. like, how callous are you? You are the devil's child. You know, I mean, it's so irrational. Absolutely. You know, no, I get it, though. Yeah. And, and so to me, Jesus is picking Peter, James and John over and over again is really if it wasn't Jesus. Yeah. I would think, do you not understand fairness? And then, then that makes me question, why is God not interested in the fairness that I'm interested in? Mm, and that good. I don't like that question because I don't want to present God as unfair. And, and I have to remind myself he's working in a totally different strata. Yeah. His ways are not my ways. But that is that dynamic. Every time I see them drawn away, and especially for this, mm-hmm. and then to keep it a secret, how did the people feel when, when Luke wrote this down or when Mar- Matthew writes down, Mark writes this down? How did the other apostles feel? And like, you did what? Well, I always wonder, like, how quickly did they share this information? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how long did it take for Jesus to, to be resurrected for them to, to share this? And I wonder how much disbelief there was at first. Like, you know, they're sitting around in the upper room, and Peter's like, just so you guys know. <laughs> and you, you got no way. Speaking that, of Moses. Speaking of, yeah, no, I, I yeah, like, they're, wait, they're just constantly waiting for somebody to mention Moses on Mount Sinai, just waiting, waiting, waiting <laughs> right, for it to happen. Exactly. What, 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 what's really interesting to me, though, is so like the thing that, at least in my mind, what a lot of this passage and a lot of what is happening here is the disciples, they're seeing like the true holiness of, of God. And, yes. and holiness is uh, is set apartness. It's otherness. It's it, when we talk about the holiness of God um, and the disciples saying, OK, this is how this is how truly remarkable jesus is we knew he was good we knew we liked him we knew he was this prophet this gift this teacher but even if we knew he was the messiah and the son of god now we fully see how much that means more than we thought before and and so there's this nature of jesus being set apart and then jesus is taking these disciples and he's setting them apart from the other disciples which there's no there's no point that i have from that but it is an interesting connection point i would say that is and and it causes me to really question how i think about my ministry and i want to be very clear i'm not talking about my job as a minister i'm talking about the way that i serve on behalf of god to bless his kingdom uh, which i'm blessed that that does coincide with what i get paid for but it's not necessarily the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times uh, for those who who are in, in professional ministry, you you think so much organizational for the whole 50, 100, 200, 5,000, whatever people, you forget that Jesus chose small and America esteems big. And so so to the to the minister that's ministering to a 25 person congregation, my experience in talking to those ministers, the ones I know, is they have to keep telling themselves, this is still good work. And yet their congregation is twice Jesus's congregation, you know what I mean, in terms of living life together and this kind of thing. And so, and and then to say 12, and then to shrink it to three, I'm like, you're the son of God. And I think we may have mentioned this in previous podcast, but why not take a thousand on? You're the son of God. And I think that speaks to me that yes, I have a responsibility because of my job to use my giftedness to bless the how many people are in the orbit of, of our church circle, but my ministry in, in watching Jesus' pattern is I need to pick one 
mm-hmm. or two to invest in for a time and then pick the other one or two or five or whatever. For sure. Instead of thinking bigger is better. What I, what I love about what you said there is you talked about, I mean, Jesus could have brought a thousand people up on that mountain. And you, you contrast that with like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where there's, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of people surrounding and, and hearing the message of Jesus relayed back and forth in this crowd. And this could have like easily been not like easily been hundreds of people and it could easily have been the 12 disciples. And so, yeah, that, that, that's just really fascinating. And I love, I love this about Jesus, right? Because as soon as we go, okay, the three, the 12, right. You know, let's just focus on our three and 12, which I think is absolutely right. I think the way that we make kingdom difference, the way we disciple and change culture or change church culture is, is through individuals. But it's also like, man, Jesus fed the 5,000 Jesus, you know, even though he had his 12 disciples and there's a sense, even with the 12 disciples that there are still other people hanging around and talking. And I, I do, I, I do love that about Jesus. You can't quite nail him down. Right. You can't quite nail Like he's not like giving the sermon on the Mount to three people. Right. And, and is, I don't know. Right. I just really like that. I, I do. And, and, and this, what I keep coming back to, there are two things I come back to all the time when I read the gospels. The first is I'm usually in the Pharisee position <laughs> If you're to take it out of their specific details and put it in some kind of corollary with right now, I usually find myself more leaning to the Pharisee position. Hey, this is the right thing to do. We should do it. You can yeah. heal on another than Sabbath. You know, why do you have to make this more complicated than this? So that's number one. And number two is Jesus is by design unpredictable and unpatterned. Mm-hmm. And that's very troubling to my mind, it's very troubling in my experience to most humans' mind, because we want to give us the give us the five steps yeah. to dot dot dot. And I'm not capping on the five acts of worship or the five you know the five steps of salvation. I'm just saying give give me the give me the list of things I have to do so I can know. Oh, I did those five today, or I only did four, so I need to get back up and do the fifth. Mm-hmm. And and this, we can't say it enough. Jesus could have just simply dropped a book of rules and said, "See you guys." But he chose to live out human relationship, and that is not a small piece of the story. That is a huge piece of the story. And we talk about the incarnation as if it's solely to show us a human died on a cross who was also God. And, and that is obviously <laughs> integral to, the, to, this, to his story. Mm-hmm. But he didn't need to stay here for 30 years. He could have come as an adult, done two weeks of ministry, and, and been killed, mm-hmm. you know? But he chose to live in a family that was fractured. He chose to live and didn't get him. He chose to go in ministry with people that are fractured and live at peace with them. That is a strong part of the story that I think we, again, we may have said this before, but we have a trouble seeing Jesus' humanity because of his deity. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those ways that shows up is that there is significant uh, impact and importance to this dynamic that that he lived as a man and interacted with people and he was totally unpredictable. You're absolutely right. And so much time when you hear Jesus like you read through a book of the, of, of a gospel and you'll see like Jesus do two opposite things where you just find yourself in this really nebulous space where you're like I, I, I don't really know what to do. And I think my reaction, I think most of humanity's reaction is to seize on, like you said, a way of doing a step-by-step process of of doing these things. And what I like, what, what's interesting about this passage is that's what Peter does, right? Peter comes into contact with something that he can't 
he can't fully fathom. He can't fully comprehend. And what does he try to do? He tries to control the situation, right? Mm-hmm. He starts feeling. He's, he starts. Oh, oh God! You know what? What does he know what to do? He does do the religious things, right? And even the you know the building of the tents, the tabernacles. That's a reference to you know all all of these men would have known how to build um, a tabernacle because of the festival of tabernacles. And so it's Peter seeing something that he can't comprehend about God, and deflecting that and running to something that he can't understand. And that just that's so me. That's so me when I come into contact w- with something with God that I can't comprehend. I want to, I want to fall back into safety, into something. Well, it's the same sort of thing of somebody says something about God that makes me uncomfortable. And well, what do you, what do you have to say about abortion? Well, what do you have to say about, you know, whatever hot topic issue there is, this, this is such a thing in, in my own heart. And I feel like in humanity's heart and as I read scripture more, Peter can easily be a punching bag, but he can also just be this gift of like, of a mirror and just going, okay, I do that all the time. Yeah. We have a longing for Jesus to make sense to us. Mm -hmm. And something that I've just taken on in my own head, Jesus is not asking them, Hey, do you agree? Does this fit your worldview? Can you make sense of this? Mm -hmm. He's saying, trust me. And, And that's the same message really all through the Bible. Why does God keep putting these favored people in these impossible situations? Mm-hmm. He could have easily left Moses alone and freed the Israelites in some other way, you know, but he doesn't. He moves us towards impossible situations and we spend our life trying to avoid impossible situations. And then we wonder, where's my big faith story? Yeah. And I, I'm, it's not that I'm even sitting in judgment. I'm talking about the man sitting <laughs> speaking right now is that is, a, oh, yeah, it's because I've sought my own defined comfort versus his peace. And see, the thing we can see in other people, right? We see it in the life of Moses. Moses, who murdered a dude, who, like, he, he, he had a lot of struggles in his own path. You go back to David. You go back to all these people in the Old Testament. And you can, you can nitpick them to death and find things that we would never consider doing in our, in our times. But yet there is this reverence for them, right? There is this, oh, my gosh, there's this other, other presence. And... I think for a lot of us, and you know, I'm not even talking about the the sinfulness necessarily of Moses now, but I'm talking about the hardships that he had to go through, and the fact that, you know, he didn't really experience like true deliverance until he's like 80 something years old. It was a long, long time for him to experience the the experience that these blessings, these true blessings from God. I, I just think for me, I think for me and and for a lot of people, it is always really helpful to be able to have a healthy view of your heroes whether they're spiritual or not and you know a lot of times you know jason and i you and i did a study on david um and and you just find a thousand things wrong the guy did and i mean just a thousand things and you just go what a what a fool what a loser what an idiot it's easy to cast yourself in that position and just go what what a what a buffoon why why would david possibly do that but the more and more i study scripture it's just the more and more recognition of the true grace, um, the true grace that God gives us. Because if God, if God can place Moses, if God can carry Moses through the whole journey that he carries him through and place him on a mountaintop where he is in the presence of Jesus, where Jesus is revealing his true holiness, then why wouldn't he be able to work in my hardships? Now, that's, that is tremendous. And, and I think this is the thing. Why I encourage keep reading the Bible. Don't read the Bible so you can say you read the Bible. I mean, if that's all you got, do that. That's better, you know, than nothing. But 
but are we reading to why we use even this framing of amazed and perplexed? We could pick a lot of emotions or, or ways of thinking about this, but it's just a lens to think about Scripture differently because we tend to, whatever sermon we've heard on the text, once we immediately when we start reading it, we're like, oh, I know what this says. Mm-hmm. Instead of being open to the Word of God, reading us, you know, the, the Word of God, it says, you know, it, it penetrates and it cuts, you know, separating bone from marrow. And, but I think we miss out on that because we're like, I'm just doing my daily reading or I know what this is going to say. Yeah. Instead of asking God, God, what will you show me? And, and to me, those two sides, what, am, what amazed me? God, show me. What, what would amaze me if I was there? What would perplex me? Mm-hmm. And so we can, we're practicing having a conversation with God. So as we talk to each other, we're talking to God. But the things that impede us talking to God is us feeling like we've got to do it on our own, which shuts him out, mm-hmm. or we're so, we're so bad, is God really even going to save us? Does he even care? And, and I think both of those are very encouraged by the devil, both those lines of thing. Instead of humbly saying, yes, I'm broken, and I was worth the death of your son to you. Mm-hmm. It, it, we never, we're not called, and we could deal with Matthew 6, but we're not called to produce your own holiness. You know, when, when he says in Matthew 6, be holy like God is holy, he's making a case for the Messiah because he's just made the case for two chapters. You can't do it, and you can't do it. Mm-hmm. But the standard is still be holy. But it's not creating your own holiness. It's accepting his holiness. So we're not throwing personal holiness or personal morality out the window. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we say you don't create it, we're saying we take on his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We take on his holiness, and then we grow up in that by trusting him. Yes. I I think the picture that always helps me with this is— most religions, right, when you talk about, you know, okay, you need to be good, you need to be holy, you need to be, you know, all, all you need to be pure, whatever whatever that means to you in your tradition. Even you find this idea that I'm about to talk about circulating a lot in Christian circles of, okay, you know, the pureness, the holiness, this is at the top of the mountain. And so you got to climb the steps to get up there. You got to you gotta do X, you got to do Y, you got to do Z so that you can get to the holiness to the purity to what God towards the creator has for you. That that's generally most thought systems throughout history. And the reason the gospel is different, it's a story of God coming down from the top of the mountain and walking the steps with you towards holiness of leading him not to your yes. personal holiness, but mm-hmm. into the presence of God, which is the ultimate holiness. Yeah. And that's right. And it's not obscure. That's really weird to me. I, I, I remember a point where I realized, wait a minute, this is talked about all through the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, even even the famous verse, Philippians 2, you know, was at 12, where it's work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's like, so you better be scared. You don't know if you're saved. And then the very next verse, it says, and it's God that does all the work. Yeah. So basically it's saying work out your fear of, uh, with work out your salvation with fear and trembling is saying, I accept my salvation. I accept it's undeserved. And I accept that this God who's holy is working with me to create these things. But he, it, it, so, the, so your emotional, your psychological uh, perspective needs to be, I don't deserve this. Mm-hmm. It's a gift. He, you know, if he wanted to, he could take it away at any time. But because of who he is, he keeps working in me to bring me to that point up the mountain, as it were. Yeah. And I think that's just so important because I think we 
part of the thing that steals our joy is because we get shut we shut out the spirit and his fruit mm-hmm. because we think okay god gave me the truth and now i got to live up to it instead of god gave me the truth and now he's going to work in me this is uh, hebrews 13 he's going to work in me to live up to it yes it's the difference between you know we see the holiness of god we see how set apart he is how good he is and we see in comparison how broken we are how fallen we are how um, in so many ways, how we failed and messed up and the evil that we put out into the world. And it's the difference between going, OK, I got to fix that and I, I've got to get that all together and I've got to stop being this as opposed to I have to focus my intentions and my thoughts towards Jesus, who has already done these things for me. And and I think for me, I mean, that that's a that's a lifelong, constant battle. But it that message is just is so, so important uh, and I know, I know, especially a lot of young people struggle with that, right? It's getting caught. You mess up and you put evil out of the world and you hurt, you actively hurt other people and you hurt yourself. And by no means do we need to live in our sin and, and be okay with it. But there's a sense of, well, I need to be miserable because of this. Mm. I need to sit in my shame and I need to, I, I, I'm bad and I, you know, I'm going to whip myself um, physically or, or metaphorically over and over and over again. And that is not Jesus has called you to lay those things down at the cross. Mm-hmm. Jesus has not called you to feel to, to live in permanent shame because of the things you have done. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you, there's, there's a mental picture that I have. We would go down to Mexico City when I worked with AIM every every year. And there's this huge Catholic building uh, there, worship space there called the Basilica, I think. And there's a there's a statue of Jesus, and if you look at this statue, it's concrete, but his feet have been worn. You can tell it's like it's really really odd. And what you'll do is, I have yet to show up there that there wasn't somebody. It's it's stone, isn't crawling on their knees to touch the feet. There's a marker where you start and you'd crawl on your knees, and that is a very human way, a non biblical way, a non Jesus way of of how this works repentance isn't a, okay, that's a starting point, and now when you repent, you're like, I'm changing now. When In Luke 15, where the son is coming back to the father, the father never says, okay, now here's the steps. Matter of fact, he doesn't even listen to it. It is so undependent on what the son says. Yeah, The son being there, the father runs to him and says, we'll start from where you are. The first step is to honor you as your true identity that is restored immediately when you're with me. Yes. The father repentance is turning your turning your back on what it was. The right. father runs to the son and he turns his back on what the son did and who the son was. Exactly. That that and that picture, this thought of I had a prodigal moment because I was really into drugs or I never went to church or I did that that's included. But it's also included every minute of every day when I get sidetracked and I'm depending on the wrong thing, but it's not a thousand miles or even 5 feet from being depending on the wrong thing. To be depending on God, it's that decision. Now in this moment, I'm trusting you. So one of the things that I just want to in wrapping up, when he says this goes back to I think what you said under about a maze, but when he says listen to him, you know when God says listen to Jesus, and you think about how the disciples didn't, you know, mm-hmm. now they would on some things. But in the big things, they just weren't willing to listen in many ways. Matter of fact, in Matthew, in Matthew's account, uh, when Jesus or when Peter tells Jesus, "Hey, you will not, you know, be killed," and Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan," 
like six days later on this Mount of Transfiguration. And I would think that would speak to Peter, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, listen to him. And Peter would think, hmm, I told Jesus this. He said, get behind me, Satan. I should really listen. And yet then not terribly long after this, Jesus is like, hey, you're going to deny me. And he's like, no, I won't. And he's <laughs> like, you're not listening again. And that is so me. That is so, so me. And we, you know, the whole picture of them moving towards the ascension in Matthew 28, and some were still doubting, that resonates with me every day. I am never far from God. He is right there for me, and his desire for me is to change from trusting anything else but him to move to just trusting him. And that is good news to me. In the version that is recorded in Matthew 17, it says that when the disciples heard this, meaning when they heard, heard God the Father, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And I I love that aspect of it, that picture. Um, the idea that Jesus would would put so much significance into physical touch. I, I just I, I love that picture and I love beautiful. I love that concept and love that idea. And it's this beautiful met like you, we would think we, we hear the voice of God and it's this ethereal, it's this you know, out of this universe experience. And what I love is, you know, they have to be feeling like, oh, Jesus is an alien, right? Jesus is a, he's not, he's a spirit. He's, he's other than, and Jesus comes and he reassures them with physical touch. And, and for me, I think this is just, it's the astounding mystery and beauty of, of who Jesus is, fully God, fully man. And he doesn't forsake, he doesn't throw away the spiritual and he doesn't throw away the physical he melds them in this beautiful reality and so that's my encouragement i think for this week for myself more than anybody else um is is how is god working in my life to meld these two realities together grace peace and love